When I was a boy, my best friend lived around the block from me, and here's how I got to his house. I would go out my back door, three quarters of an acre through the backyard to a chain link fence, I would hop the fence, go across the green space onto the road to the right and be at his home. One day I was called by him to come visit and so I was walking towards that chain link fence and I began to utter something to myself kind of quietly, just talking out loud, but quietly to myself. You ever talk to yourself just a little here, a little there, especially when no one can hear you? Well, I do. And I started talking about going around the block. And I just kept saying around the block, around the block, until I cut off the word around and the and simply said block. And I began just to repeat that word over and over again like this. Block, 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 block. Have you ever done that? Said a word over and over again. When I said it that day, I noticed something about that word that it lost its meaning to me. Block. It became a guttural sound. I began to say other words, curious as I was about this phenomenon that was taking place in my mind and in my ears and with my mouth. Fence, 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 fence. If you say a word over and over enough times, it tends to do that. It tends to lose the meaning of itself. And it just becomes a sound to us. It wasn't until I was later a grown person in life that I know that this was called semantic satiation, where the words that we say would lose their meaning and we would simply hear noise. Block, block, block block. Words are interesting things, aren't they? What are they? Well, they're nothing if they're not signals to something signified. We try to signify an object to other thinking animals by these words, these signals that we attach to them. The block was a signal for a geographical space. The fence was a barrier in my yard. And if I spoke it aloud to another rational animal, they would know, presumably, what I had meant. Words are funny things. Sometimes I find the real poetry of a word lies in its root meaning. Sometimes in its root meaning, you find a bygone language from a bygone era. Sometimes you find words from different other words slam together to form a new word, and somehow there's beautiful meaning in the putting of words together. I'll never forget the first time I learned what the word aftermath really meant. You see, for me, most of my life, when I heard that word aftermath, I thought of the wake of tragedy. In the aftermath of the Oklahoma City bombing, my mind would go right to that Murrah building and the devastation that lay bare on the television screen. In the aftermath of the events surrounding Hurricane Andrew in Florida, and I began to think 
about what I saw on the news coverage of that path of destruction. All of us have lived in the aftermath of Ground Zero in New York City on September the 11th, and we thought about what has happened in the wake of devastation. But it was in a poetry class when I learned about the root to the word aftermath, and I learned there that the word aftermath was originally used for the first and last mowing of a season. And I don't mean mowing like a lawnmower with John Deere. I'm talking about a man or men out in a field with a scythe or sickle cutting down tall prairie grasses and briars and brambles and clover to prepare a field. And what would be left would be the wet, dewy lumps of grass on top of shorter grass with all the odors of clover and everything else cut down. You can smell the aftermath. How many of you can smell right now the first fresh mowing of your lawn in spring? You're living in the aftermath. Words are funny things, and sometimes to get to the real depth of a word, we've got to look at its root. There's a word that you and I have become accustomed to in our world that is also a tricky one to talk about. That word is religion. Over these next seven weeks, we're starting a sermon series called we need religion, or why we need religion. And I find that that word is endlessly tricky because it means a lot of things to a lot of people. It's a word that's got a lot of baggage. It's a word that, like politics, you and I know, is a dangerous utterance around a Thanksgiving table. Yet, it is a word that has lots of meaning, lots of usages, and it has a root that can illuminate some deeper truth. I think the word religion needs a bit of rehabilitation today. Maybe we could say that we need to redeem it as a word because in my estimation, there's help in it for each and every one of us. Religion for many people means something to do with an institution that probably has covered up some sort of hypocrisy that has thou shalt nots associated with it. Maybe church buildings and rules and regulations, and maybe it's a bit stodgy. And at best, it's divided people and separated families and perhaps even nation states. But what is its root? What does religion mean below the surface? Well, there's a couple words that have been put together to create the word religion. And if you look at some of the original usages of these words, religion means something like this. To bind back. As in, to bind back to a source. Or maybe you can say this, to connect back to the source. And you and I have another word for the source, don't we? 
It's not an easy to define word, but it's a word we use all the time, and that word is God. Religion, it's about the communities and the practices and the habits that are meant to bind us back to God. What couldn't be more life-giving than that? Yet, people find it a bit spooky to talk about. I had a family member talk to me recently about their coworker, somebody that had a cubicle near their cubicle, and they were complaining about their coworker. I don't know why. Maybe they had a bunch of symbols of the faith around their cubicle. They might have been listening to a radio station called Fish or Whale or something. Something, you know, safe for the whole family. Maybe they said some prayers in that cubicle. But some photographs were taken and said, here's my coworker who's super religious. Super religious. And then they realized and remembered who they were speaking to, me. And they said, oh, oh, um, yeah, yeah, scary religious is what I mean. And, you know, you know kind of over-the-top religious, not like you. I didn't know if I should have been offended at that either. They were super religious. Sometimes we use such words because we feel a bit alienated by belief systems and practices. And so there's another word that's used in our culture. It's a word that's meant to speak to the fact that you want to believe in something, that you want to connect with something, that you want to have practices and habits in your life that are about the depth of your being. Yet, Yet you don't want to belong to an institution called a church. You don't want anyone else to have claim on your life or be able to hold you accountable. And so you say things like, well, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. What does that mean? Well, I suppose it could mean that you're interested in one sort of religious modality or another. Astrology, for instance, or tarot. I hate to break it to you. Tarot is not more than a couple hundred years old, and astrology is big business right now. In fact, in 2021, those two fields grossed over a billion dollars in our country. Those expressions are on the rise. Or you could be interested in crystals and bookstores that talk about empowering the human spirit, whatever that means. Or you could be interested in what they call alternative or new religious systems. Or what's more, a combination of ancient and new and mix and match. And whatever gods you want to put up on your bookcases to best describe who you think you are. Maybe that's what we mean by spiritual and not religious. 
You have these modalities, you just don't like to go to church. I don't know. I do know that I was at a parent-teacher conference for school one day, and the teacher, a lovely teacher, cares about my child, wonderful educator, found out what I did for a living. I just love telling people I'm a preacher. It's endless fun for me. Or it's endless pain. Because then you got to put up with a whole lot of stuff like this. Oh, I, I, I'm not religious. I, I used to go to church, but I'm not religious. I'm not religious, but, but I am spiritual. Okay. I just want to find out about my child's grades and how they're doing. But now i got to listen to all the ways in which someone says they're spiritual. And what I discern from that conversation, amongst many others, is for them to not be religious meant they didn't go to church, but they were spiritual. It meant that they had a deep desire to connect with something more. Something deep in here to connect it to something that orientated their life. When you really think about it like that and peel the layers of the onion back, really the meaning of religion and the meaning of spirituality are a match. We have a something that seeks to bind a someone to a source, to the something more, to the giver of life, to the creator of meaning, to the beautiful. Words are funny things. But you and I are religious. And I think it's important for us to know where religion often goes wrong. Religion goes wrong when it's merely an institution. When it's a place that you, you go that has a bunch of bylaws and customs and rules and regs, where there's people who are more popular there than elsewhere, and perhaps insiders and outsiders, and it's all about the same thing that a social club is about. It's the kind of thing that you do when you're amassing success in your life. You know what I'm talking about. The first thing that you do is you graduate high school, check, got that one marked off the list, and then I go to college, check, I got that marked off the list. I fell in love, found my soulmate, check, get that off the list, found my first job, check, get that one. Get married, check. And then I have kids, and I better get back to Sunday school. They need that good religious upbringing, don't they? Check. It's the next thing I do on a list of things that you're supposed to do that the wider world expects of me, of polite society wants for me, that mommy and daddy raised me to do, and it's the right moral thing to do, isn't it? But if that's what it is, I don't have any interest in it. Because it's just one more thing in a list of things that weigh me down. Richard Rohr is a Franciscan spiritual teacher who points this out and says oftentimes that where religion goes wrong is when it becomes merely transactional. We're religious because of a transactional thing that we receive from the religious practice. 
we say the right prayers, we go to the right places, we say we believe the right things so that maybe we escape damnation or hellfire or judgment. It's a transaction. I do this so I get away from all that stuff. And that's the stark part of it. Most of us are a bit more clever than that. And the transaction of our religion is a little bit more camouflaged than that. I once knew a fellow who thought about his life this way. If I can just do the right stuff, say the right prayers, if I just give enough money in my tithe, if I can just volunteer enough hours, there's some sort of formula as if, as if karma were involved or some fancy input-output machine. If I just put enough into the religious box of my life, then God is going to bless me with what I want out of life. And then I'll have the postcard picture of life that I want. Then I will have the kind of life I've always dreamed of that everyone tells me is the life that's worth living. It's my best life now. What happens to that picture postcard image when it's stored in a house that's burning on fire and everything around it is going up in smoke? What was the point of it then? There's a whole world of gospel preaching like this called health and wealth or prosperity. If I'm faithful enough, I will get what I want. Funny thing is, Jesus says it doesn't work that way. Rohr says that good religion, good spirituality isn't transactional, it's transformational. It's the series of practices and it's the sort of community and it's the kind of discipline and education that we give ourselves to on a regular basis that reaches not just to the level of what we wear on the outside, but it reaches right in between our ears and into our heart, into the darkest places of our spirit where the light, we Sometimes we don't want the light to shine there. And it reaches right down and from the inside out brings change and deep transformation to our lives. Leaving us forever renewed and new and different. And if that's not the point of religion, then what are we doing it for? I'll never get the point of people who are so devoted to church but don't look any different for having gone. What's the point? Real religion, that which binds us back to the source of all, which is God, ought to leave us new. Here we have a passage that we read this morning where Jesus says, you've heard it said before, and He's quoting from the First Testament laws and customs. And he goes, but I tell you. And then he says some, some new sounding commands. There's a lot to say here. And there's a long list offered. Maybe we could say that this shows that Jesus has authority over what came before. But all I want to focus on is that part where Jesus says, but I say to you. Because the way things were conceived of before is transactional. 
we get confused when we read what we call the Old Testament. There's all kinds of stuff in there that, that confuses our sense of right and wrong. There's that, remember that passage that talks about uh, eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? Sounds barbaric, doesn't it? But in the ancient world, it was absolutely civilizing. Because if you had a law that said you can only go so far as eye for eye, tooth for tooth, then you had limits to your vengeance. And let me tell you the sick truth. There are no limits to my vengeance. And there are no limits to yours. We can go places you don't dream about. But if you have a world that says there's limits, well, now you have a society that can live. There was peace in that, a relative peace, a relative grace, a relative help. Jesus is saying more. It's not just about a transaction. Jesus says, look, you got something wrong with your neighbor. Leave your altar. Leave your worship. Leave church and go make it right with them. Because it's not about a transaction, it's about a transformation of your spirit. Jesus says it's not enough just to not kill somebody. You can't hate them either because it's not just enough to have the transactional thing go on. you got to go deep down inside your heart and be changed there. It's not enough to have an affair. Big deal, you kept your promise on your wedding day. Don't even look at other people like they're objects. Men, don't look at women like they're meat. It's not enough. It's not enough to not damn someone to hell. Don't even speak poorly to them or about them. Because what we're called to is a transformation of the Spirit. Something new. Have you ever seen that film, Groundhog Day? We just celebrated Groundhog Day. It's a great movie. Bill Murray plays uh, Phil Connors, who's a weatherman who's up in Punxsutawney. And he begins to live the same day over and over and over again. Most people don't realize that that film itself has a couple spiritual backgrounds uh, pieces to it. One is Buddhism and the other one is the Christian philosophy of the Danish 19th century thinker Soren Kierkegaard. Soren Kierkegaard says there's three stages to life. There's the aesthetic stage to life, the life of passion and desire. There's the ethical stage of life. This is the life of the universal good, right? And then there's the religious stage of life. And I like it because he actually uses the word religion. And Phil goes through all the stages right there in Punxsutawney. When he has to live this doldrum of a February day over and over and over again, and he was already a sour gentleman in the first place. He was already not very good to be around. Selfish. He begins to live the aesthetic life, the life of pleasure. 
He starts eating whatever he wants, all the fattening food, all the sugar he wants. He begins drinking all the drink he wants to drink. He's smoking cigarettes. He is trying to find himself into the bedroom of a different woman every night. He becomes a Lothario. It's a ladies' man. And what happens when you live that kind of life over and over and over with no end is you find out your life has no purpose and no end. And your desires, well, they change. And so you have no self. And when you have no self, what's the point? So Phil Connors ends up taking his life day after day after day. He finds a measure of salvation by trying to live the ethical life. And here in the ethical life, he begins to try to save the life of a homeless man who's out on the streets in the freezing February cold in Pennsylvania. He tries to help a friend who's definitely feeding himself too much alcohol, too much food, too much cigarettes, too much bowling. And he has a coronary every night and he tries to save his life every night. He tries to help people out. He tries to learn the piano. He tries to do good things. But the problem with it is, is when you live for the ethical universal, who decides what that is? And it devolves down into the aesthetic always because you're looking for yourself. From there, despair sets in again. And he begins to take his life. For Kierkegaard, you can only realize the aesthetic, and the ethical in the religious. And that's when Phil decides to live religiously. Although in this movie, because it's Hollywood, it's not religion, it's romance. He's been in love with this producer, and he finally decides to start living with an eye towards self-giving love. And it's only when he starts handing his life over in love it's only when he lives the religious life that he actually learns what it means to live for true pleasures and true morality. It's only then that he breaks the cycle of waking up in the same place every day, on the same day every day. It's only then that he can come out new. It's only then that his life is transformed. My friends, we are called to a religious life. And that religion that we live is called calling us to be transformed. Bless you.